In the last episode, we discussed the early history of a mansion in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles with a mysterious past. So far, there have been three deaths, the original owners who got sick and died within a month of each other, only living there for three years. The property itself was a headache for the family afterward, which took nearly four years before selling it. But that was only where the nightmare began. Welcome to the conclusion of a special two-part episode of Nightmare Houses. Lillian Minnie Silver was born in April 1916 in New York. She was the youngest of three children of Russian Jewish immigrants. The family appears to have moved to Ohio just a short time later and finally settling in California in the 1920s. Minnie graduated from Los Angeles High School in 1932. It's not clear what she did between graduating high school and getting married. She did not appear to attend college, and it's not clear if she worked. It's also not clear how she met Dr. Harold Nathan Pearlson, but they were married on April 7, 1937, when she was 22 and he was 28. Harold was born in New York, also to a Jewish family, in 1909, and he was the oldest of several children. He received his education in New York and became a cardiologist. Sometime in the 1930s, he moved to Los Angeles. The couple lived in Los Angeles and Harold's career appeared to be doing well and on a successful trajectory in those early years, as Harold would be published, have a patent, and give talks in the community. Their first child, Judith Rachel Pearlson, was born on July 31, 1941. The Pearlsons timed their children with the onset of World War II. They waited until after the war was over to continue growing the family. Their son, Joel David Pearlson, was born on April 7, 1946. Finally, another daughter, Deborah Lynn Pearlson, was born on February 16, 1948. In 1956, the Pearlsons purchased the mansion at 2475 Glendower Place. Harold purchased it for a steal, and it seemed like a great deal. The unfortunate reality is that the Pearlsons were deeply in debt when they moved to the Glendower Place home. In August 1958, Harold was admitted to Temple Hospital for a short psychiatric stay. While unknown the exact cause and reason he was admitted to the emergency room and stayed nearly a week in the hospital, it was likely his first known suicide attempt. The drug Thorazine was prescribed to him, indicating a mental health episode was likely. Lillian Pearlson had planned to have her husband committed to a psychiatric ward December of 1959. While he appeared to be successful on the outside, he wasn't. He had many financial troubles, including a few legal issues, and Harold began to resent his wife and oldest daughter. He blamed them for his financial struggles. Their oldest daughter, Judy, was quite aware of her parents' financial strain and had even written to an aunt shortly before the attack regarding her parents' finances. But there was something else that was likely taking a toll on Harold. He had a secret. It was very likely he was abusing prescription drugs, perhaps as a means to escape his problems. As a doctor, he had plenty of access to controlled substances. Taking these drugs could have played a role in the subsequent tragedy if Harold was dealing with a mental illness. In 1958, the Pearlsons purchased the Inglewood Medical Clinic and leased the interior for a private medical practice in Inglewood. The lease had a term until 1963, but payments would increase drastically, from around $250 to about $1,000 after the first two years. 
That first increased payment was due on January 1st, 1960. It seemed as though the private practice was an effort to turn around the financial situation, but it wasn't making the money the Pearlsons had hoped. Around 4.30 a.m. on Sunday, December 6th, 1959, Harold stood over his wife's twin bed where she was sleeping in the master bedroom, held a ball-peen hammer up above her head, and struck her several times over the back of the head. Dr. Pearlson was a slight man, only about 5 foot 7 inches, and weighing about 150 pounds. It might have been more difficult for him to kill his wife than he thought. When he struck her, it was not enough to fracture the skull, but it did cause a 3.5 centimeter laceration to the back of her head, two abrasions, including a superficial diamond-shaped abrasion, and two minor cuts just above her right ear. Lillian was asleep when she was struck over the head and never woke up. She never screamed or made much sound to rouse anyone. After striking his wife over the head at least three times, Harold went through the Jack and Jill bathroom connecting the master bedroom and Judy's room. It's unclear if Harold turned on her light or left them off, but either way, just as he was bringing down his hammer on his oldest daughter's head while she slept, she woke up just in time to turn her head to avoid mortal injury. Like her mother, she received a superficial laceration to the head, but screamed and ran out of the bedroom through the Jack and Jill bathroom, where she likely saw her mother choking on her own blood. It's unknown if Judy was awakened by the sounds of her father coming into the room or just some feeling, but she was spared at the last moment. Awakened by their sister's screams, the other two children, Joel and Debbie, came out into the hallway. At that point, Harold told his youngest daughter not to worry, to go back to bed. It was all just a nightmare. Judy screamed as she fled the house and went down the 51 steps to seek help. The first neighbor she turned to did not answer their door. They were likely incredibly shocked, and in the early morning hours, and with Judy screaming hysterically and bleeding from the head, they were probably afraid and didn't recognize her. Judy then turned and ran to another neighbor's house for help, who did let her in. Concerned, that neighbor went up to the residence to find Harold, who told him to leave. By that point, Harold had gone back into the Jack and Jill bathroom, and there he consumed a fatal dose of barbiturates. He lay dying on the floor next to his wife's bed. The neighbor called an ambulance, but Harold Pearlson was dead before it arrived. That night, the intended victims were Lillian, Judy, and Harold, with Judy miraculously surviving the brutal attack. Judy waking up disrupted Harold's plan, and he never intended to kill the youngest two children, and they were probably never meant to see any of it. It's unknown whether he planned on killing himself that night or not. Perhaps he had another plan in mind, but Judy waking up foiled him and decided to end it then and there since his wife was already dead. He had the access to the drugs he needed to cause an overdose. Following the tragedy, the estate was sold in probate, including its furnishings and personal belongings. Harold Pearlson had a massive debt at the time of his death. The assets he had were the three family cars, the private practice in Inglewood, and the house, but he had many debts, including late tuition payments for his children and other fees. The children went to New York to live with extended family following the horrific events. They didn't want anything to do with the house again. Judy never liked the home even when they first moved in and before that gruesome early morning, often comparing the home to a mausoleum. The house sat on the market for a little over a year before being sold, but it wasn't an easy sale. 
There was a lack of interest in the property since the tragic events, and no one seemed to want to live there. Los Angeles today is very different from the Los Angeles in the mid-century. In those days, this neighborhood in Los Feliz was exclusively white. It was usually against policy for realtors to show certain homes to people of color. In 1960, a Mexican-American couple, Julian and Amelia Enriquez, from the Lincoln Heights area of Los Angeles, got news of a large mansion for sale in an exclusive neighborhood for a meager price due to the murder-suicide, and it wasn't selling. They decided they would buy it, not for themselves, but their only son. The Enriquezes took a chance on the property, even negotiating for a lower price. Amelia Enrique came from a great wealth in Mexico. Her parents immigrated to Texas from Mexico and settled in the Los Angeles area in the 1930s. Julian's parents were immigrants from Mexico who first settled in Texas before continuing to Los Angeles as well. It's not clear when they met, but they were married and they started a family. It appears they were able to only have just one child. Despite their wealth, Amelia and her husband opened up their auto repair and filling station to provide even more of an inheritance for their one and only golden child, Rudy. They worked hard and built their wealth for him, and when the opportunity came to own a lavish mansion in an exclusive neighborhood, they took it. However, they never fully moved in. The reality is that there was likely some systemic racism that alienated the Mexican couple in the exclusive neighborhood. The family also had multiple investment properties and a family home purchased in the early 1900s in Lincoln Heights that the couple chose to live at instead. Perhaps they just never felt comfortable or welcome in the neighborhood, especially in those early years. Also, the property was purchased for their son, who was 29 years old in 1960. Despite rumors that the property was vacant for decades, utilities and other documents indicated someone was living there all those decades. Rudolf Rude Enriquez was born in Los Angeles in November 1931. He would be their only child, and they were a very close-knit family. Rudy served in World War II and went on to have a career as a music manager in the late 1960s that would span over 30 years. In 1973, his father Julian died, leaving the property to his mother. Rudy never got married or had children. It appears he had a girlfriend he was hoping to marry, but she died tragically in a car accident, and he never seemed interested in a relationship again. He was reported as a lovely and kind person. However, Rudy was also a hoarder. Despite being wealthy, he lived modestly. Rudy even reused the paper that had Dr. Pearlson's notes on them. He kept everything and lived frugally. When his parents bought the estate, they purchased it as is including the furnishings and personal property that had belonged to the previous residents. When Rudy moved in, he moved in amongst the furnishings already there, just adding his things over time. In 1994, his mother Amelia died, and the city of Los Angeles forced Rudy to make the many necessary repairs on the property. While he and his friends spent time there when they needed a place to live, he didn't maintain the property throughout the years. The house became a time capsule or a memorial to his parents' memory. It was their gift to him, and perhaps he didn't want to change anything. Unfortunately, estates need to be maintained, updated, and cared for, as homeownership is a vast and costly responsibility. The longer repairs and upgrades go neglected, the greater the risk of the property being lost to time forever increases. 
But this residence was about to become a legend forever. In 2009, Bob Poole of the Los Angeles Times reported on the house, launching it into the public spotlight. Depicting the house as abandoned and filled with the victim's furnishing, seemingly trapped in time, attracted significant interest in the property. It became a real-life urban legend on social media and spread like wildfire in the paranormal and true crime communities. In 2015, Rudy Enrique died. He was 83 years old at the time and was living in a much smaller, more modest house. When he died, he was a millionaire, but it wasn't easy to tell. After his death, the property was again put into a probate sale for the first time in almost 60 years. In 2016, attorney Lisa Bloom, daughter of famed attorney Gloria Allred, and her husband purchased the property in a probate auction for just over $2.2 million. Before it sold, the owners completely gutted it down to the studs in hopes of a renovation. The elaborate built-ins, the attic speakeasy with light fixtures that looked like small barrels, and the walls that witnessed all those deaths were gone. A woman obsessed with a reality TV star, Stasi Schroeder, stole a piece of property, specifically the notorious light switch plate that remained in Judy's room of the house, for attention. Her husband was the realtor to the couple that purchased the property. She went in, and when she had the chance, she stole the plate from Judy's room to give as a gift to Schroeder, who herself was a fangirl of the Los Feliz murder house. It should be made clear that it's unacceptable to trespass or steal from a property that doesn't belong to you. It's disrespectful to the owners, the property, and ultimately the victims. It's also disrespectful to the neighborhood residents. It's also unsafe. Lisa and Brandon planned to live there. Lisa's dream neighborhood was Los Feliz, but after some renovations, the couple listed the property for sale for $3.5 million in December 2019. It was sold to a real estate investor through an LLC in December 2020 for $2.3 million. Some of the legends of this home were based on fact, but the details were heavily exaggerated over time. Ultimately, this loses the focus of the real tragedy. A family was shattered, and three children's lives forever changed. Rumors spread about the property being haunted, but the long-term owner never experienced anything to support the theory. Ultimately, the property was poorly designed and had chronic plumbing and drainage issues. It was up a steep hill. Despite improvements, it sat uncared for for so long, it was probably more of a money pit than a dream home. The early deaths in the home could be attributed to perhaps a mole due to stagnant water from flooding. Heavy rains hit the Los Angeles area in 1927 and in 1932. Antibiotics still weren't around in the home's early history, and death was more common from superficial infections than they are today. So those early deaths in the house, while tragic, weren't terribly uncommon. Dr. Pearlson wanted to live beyond his means. He took the opportunity to purchase a house in a nice neighborhood for a reasonable price that was too good to be true. Ultimately, it was just another contributing factor to his violent breakdown. The subsequent owners were the opposite of the Pearlsons, wealthy, but living quietly and modestly. The Enrique family wanted to leave their only son an impressive home and plenty of assets for him in a time when it was harder for families of color to do so. But the house was just too big and just needed too much work. Rudy's hoarding tendencies only added to the myths and the legends as he left a treasure trove of accumulated stuff from the past. Enrique's family did use the property all those decades. It just didn't appear that way. 
and the property was left almost as a shrine or memorial to Rudy's parents after they were gone. The home's history is steeped in tragedy, and the place has a frequency of sitting unlived in for long periods of time. Still, the house itself, the location, perhaps the design, and any other maintenance issues made it an undesirable place to live. A tragic murder-suicide added to the legend and will forever be tied to a horrible event in the early morning hours of December 6, 1959. The tragedy is remembered, but the victim, the real victim, Lillian Minnie Pearlson is still very much forgotten in the midst of all the rumors and lore. She seemed like a good wife and mother, and loved her children very much. Since the new owners have taken the property in 2020, it's been reported they plan to restore the mansion to its original 1920s charm. Hopefully, they will recreate that hidden speakeasy in the attic, but it seems there are administrative and other issues that need to be resolved with the city of Los Angeles before any work can be done. The property still sits vacant with a gutted interior as of this recording. Thank you for listening to a special two-part episode on Nightmare Houses. For more information, including photos and references, please visit www.nightmarehouses.com. A special thank you to the Los Feliz Murder Mansion podcast for their time, effort, and research on this property. For a more detailed look into the mystery house, please visit www.losfelizmurdermansion.com for more. Until next time, goodbye.